Hello and welcome to the Mindful Men podcast, the show helping men to open up about manhood. My name is Simon Rennie and my aim is to get men talking. From mental health to fatherhood and everything in between, Mindful Men creates a safe space for conversation. Now, before we get into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you for joining me. It means a world for you to join me and talk about men's issues. And if you love what you hear, please subscribe and share the episode with your mates. You can also join the conversation on Instagram and YouTube, and I'd love to connect with you there. But for now, sit back, relax, and let's get mindful. G'day guys, and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Men podcast. I'm your host, Simon Rooney, and today we're getting mindful about men's mental health and patriarchy. Now, a trigger warning, because we will be talking about mental health, that if you do get triggered by discussions around mental health or mental illness, feel free to skip this episode. That's okay. But if you do stick around and you do get triggered, please reach out to your support networks afterwards. And today joining me, I've got Kyle Hamer from Vancouver, Canada. How are you going, Kyle? I'm doing very well. Excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I have been for a little while. Now, Kyle, you're a community builder with Man Becoming. Um, tell us a bit about what man becoming is before we get started into the show. Yeah. So it literally started as an idea. I, I had joined a, a brotherhood, a local brotherhood here in Vancouver. Um, I was in it for about 18 months, year and a half. And that was kind of my first foray into the space of men's work. And what happened, like the more I kind of got into it and then, you know, Mr. Uh, Google over there, I realized that there was this thing of whenever you type in anything to do with like being a man, there's, there's pages and pages and pages of how to be a man. And I thought this is insane. Like, can you imagine, like, it it seems comical when you, when you reverse the script and you go, can you imagine pages of like how to be a woman? No. Right. It just doesn't happen. So I was like, wow, there's, there's, you know, like we talk about like the male identity crisis that, you know, we're kind of having. And this was like the spotlight for me. Mm. And so I got into men's work through the brotherhood and I just kind of went down the rabbit hole and, and man becoming as a name, as an idea was this idea that everything else is like how to become a man. And I was like, what if we reverse that script and, and said, we're first, we are men. We don't need to do anything to qualify as a man. Like we are men by choice or otherwise, I don't care. If you choose, if that's your, you know, chosen gender, great, but we don't have to qualify being a man. And the becoming part isn't about becoming a man. It's about first we accept that we are a man, then we can become the man that we want to become. And for me, I do that through community. Wonderful. I love this concept. I was on another podcast this morning before we, we jumped online together and, and I was talking about growing up in the 80s and 90s in northern suburbs of Adelaide, so a very working-class area, cross between working-class and a lot of pockets of welfare as well. And in the 80s and 90s, like the only idea I had about the world and, and what it meant to be a man was essentially the people around me. So my my dad and my three brothers and the people I went to school with and, and the people that I played sports with, so particularly Australian rules footy. And... You know, we had three channels on the TV. That was it. And it was very much, you had a TV guide and you knew what you were going to watch during the day. There was no choice. 
um, aside from you choosing not to watch the TV and, and you had your two or three radio stations, but that was it. And so this idea of what it meant to be a man in the 80s and 90s was very much driven in particular my environment was that, yeah, boys become men by being tough and and masculine and strong and, and they don't talk about emotions. And interestingly enough, like when I was in primary school, I remember my friend, he he was crying in the schoolyard and I went into this automatic, boys don't cry. So I went up to him and said, mate, you've got to stop crying. Boys don't cry. And he said, Simon, I can cry if I want to. And it really shook my world. It planted a seed in my mind that maybe everything I'd been learning about what it meant to be a man was not true. And that stuck with me ever since. And, and it's kind of driving me with mindful men, like how we how we can be mindful of who we are and how we can grow. And it sounds like in a very similar way to man becoming. So I really love this concept and particularly around community building because you know, we're in a nomadic world these days. A lot of guys that I know around Sunshine Coast, where I live, they, they've they moved interstate a few times. Like I've been in four different Australian states and this is not where I grew up. And a lot of guys do fly in, fly out work to mines and, and all yeah. sorts of stuff. So that sense of community has essentially disappeared for a lot of guys particularly. And I think maybe that's why they're all Googling, how do you become a man? How do you connect with community? How do you make friendships and stuff like that? Well, yeah, it, it, it's so systemic. I mean, it's, you know, you can literally go through school nowadays. Um, I think in, in our generation, it wasn't as common, but now you can go through your entire K to 12 education and never have a male teacher. Hmm. And then if you don't have a dad at home and if you didn't play sports, the odds of you never having a male role model of any kind is, is huge. It's very likely actually. And it's, it's interesting when you described your, you know, where you're from and where you grew up, because as you were saying that, I'm like, small town, yeah, industrial, yeah, you know, like every, you know, the three channels we called, I called it farmer vision. Mm. Um, you know, it was three channels, two of them were the same, more or less. <laughs> so it's just like, which one comes in clearer on this day? Yeah. Um, cause it, it was like antenna. It wasn't even like, you know, clear TV. It was, <laughs> I know. had a TV that you just have to pull the dial out and then it would turn on. Like, yeah, I know no, the ones. Not yeah, a yeah. remote or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. We had the ones encased in the wood, the yeah. wood frame. Um, but yeah, I grew up in a town of, you know, at the time, I think it was, I think it was actually maybe even bigger than, than it is now, but it was, um, you know, around 20,000 people. I think we actually had the largest logging sector in North America. We were a logging town through and through, but we were also a mining town and we had peripheral to the oil industry. So there's a lot of people traveling in and out for oil as well. So very resource-based town. Mm -hmm. um, and everything in the town was based off the resource money, right? Like it just, that was what made the town tick. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it was a lot of middle class and a lot of welfare. There was, there was not much in between and there was not a lot of extreme and I'll tell you a little story. Cause I remember that first moment for you, like that, you know, where you were saying that he was like, I can cry if I want to. For me, it was, I hated school. I was very good in school. School was easy for me. Like the learning part was easy for me. I was like a magnet to it, but it was the before school recess, lunch hour, after school. I hated it. It was a nightmare because that meant that I had to fend for myself. It was very isolating. So my experience of kind of that idea of like manhood was I grew up fishing and camping, fishing, camping, hunting. Like that was, that was what we did. And I loved it when we went out hunting with the guys, but, um, it, 
was the first time where the guys, you know, the dads were just like, you know, at the age of like 10 years old, they're like, well, when you're with us, you're men, you know, and mm. what, what happens in the bush stays in the bush, you know, and you guys can, you can swear, you can curse and the mamas will never know. And I remember that feeling, like there was definitely that sense of like, Ooh, I feel respected. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But it's funny because I remember the first time I ever kind of put that mask on myself was on a hunting trip and I ended up shooting a moose and it was the first time I'd ever done that. I've shot birds and whatever, but it was the first time I'd ever shot a moose, anything big. And I remember it was like the adrenaline pumping, I'm shaking. But as soon as it fell, there was this massive sense of sadness and grief mm -hmm. in me. And at the same time, I think it was probably to this day, the most proud my dad has ever been of me. Wow. So it put me in this, such a paradox of here's my dad celebrating me. And I feel so bad for what I just did, yeah. you know? Um, and I remember that was the first time where it was just like, it was kind of like that. All right. I'm just going to pretend to be super happy about it and not let that sadness show and just you know, it was, it was everything for my dad in that moment. So did you go hunting again after that? Like, did you keep hunting? I did for a couple more years, but that was, I think I got the moose when I was around 15 or something. So I was right in that age where, you know, I started getting a job and you know, I didn't necessarily go out with them as much. And by the time I was 18, I was out, out of hunting. And, and now I'm in the city and my idea of going hunting would be to, uh, you know, shooting anything would be to take a camera. <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah. you know, I just, um, I just don't have a desire. Yeah. It's interesting. Like when you're a dad, like the things in different, in different parts of our time that make you proud as a parent, the one that sticks out for me for my, cause I've got a, a son who's five and a half and was the first time he just stood up to do a wee. Yeah. Like that's, <laughs> that's even comparing to shooting a moose. But I think it's also maybe it's a it's a, a period of time that's different. It's also the the activities you're doing. I guess like for me, it's a life milestone for my son to stand up and and go to the toilet mm -hmm. for a 15 year old or so, almost like a rites of passage type yeah. thing. And I think a lot of guys would go through that as well. And like in, in Australia, the rites of passage are more like drinking at 16. And so we can legally drink at 18. So, but you generally start at 16 and particularly in my social circles and, and getting drunk and how bad can you write yourself off essentially. And that was the other side of my town. Like when I wasn't, you know, going out hunting or fishing, by the time I hit that 16 mark, it was, like I said, it was a lot less of the outdoorsy and it was a alcohol fueled mm. rager from the time I was, I mean, I didn't do it frequently when I was 16, but that's when it started. Um, you know, go camping with friends and just buy like a bottle of 151 proof rum. And, mm. you know, cause we're like, oh, this is 20 bucks and it'll get all of us drunk, like for multiple days, um, <laughs> just smelling the bottle. And you're like, oh, but yeah, from the time I was 16 till I was probably 26, it was, it was like a decade of, you know, just, that was the thing was you just go and get absolutely smashed. Yeah. You mentioned before, like the schoolyard and, and like outside of the classroom and, and you had to kind of essentially be the man yourself. And can you describe a bit about what some of the things that you went through in the schoolyard? I used to say that I was bullied, but in truth, I wasn't like I was teased a little bit. Mostly it was isolation. 
I desperately wanted to belong. I desperately wanted to have friends, you know, as, as every kid does. And I just remember thinking at times that I was like, man, I wish I was invisible because at least then people would have an excuse not to see me. I don't know what hurt more, the teasing or not being seen. And I, I think at the end of the day, not being seen, because at least when you're seen and you're being teased, you get angry, you can retaliate, you can, you can respond. But when nobody sees you, you, what do you do? Um, I think that the one thing that really sums up my experience through school was in junior high. In my case, it was grade eight, nine, 10. My best friend, we fished together, camped together, played hockey together. Like we did video games, like you name it after school, go over to his place or he'd come to mine and we'd hang out. We'd hang out all weekend, sleepovers, all the stuff. We went on ski trips with family and, you know, just all the stuff. He could barely say hi to me in school. Why was that? Because he was too busy trying to keep up a reputation as, you know, trying to stay in the in crowd and too much proximity to me would bring the status down. He would say hi, but he would never hang out with me. But it was always kind of done in a way that I didn't realize what was going on until you know, many, many years later that I look back at it, I go, wow, that was cruel. Do you ever think like when you were hanging out after school and on the weekends, like, did you ever have a discussions around, why don't you hang out with me in the schoolyard? I don't think I had enough self-respect to do it. You know, it's, it's, this is the one thing that they don't talk about when, you know, we talk about isolation and, and being lonely and alone and is you are so desperate to belong and to have a friend that you just, you would never jeopardize and, and risk that. And what if you don't like the answer, right? I wonder if that extends into discussions around mental health and the way we're treating our partners and all those types of things as well. Do you think now that you're an adult, have you ever been in conversations where you're like, oh, this doesn't sit right with me, but I don't want to jeopardize this friendship given what's happened previously? I lived that. I mean, I, I lived that reality um, really up until I joined the Brotherhood. So that was only like three years ago. I was very manipulative in my relationships before. Very. And again, it was that needing to be loved, needing to be needed. But there was this weird, almost like litmus test that I would put them through. It goes like this. And I don't know if this sounds familiar to anybody that you know might be listening, but I would test them. I would push them to their absolute breaking point. And that breaking point was a measuring stick to how much they actually loved me or how much they cared for me. They must really love me if they're going to tolerate all of this. Mm. And it, it, it's born from that idea that you don't deserve friends. You don't deserve people in your life. And when they're there, there there's got to be some kind of mistake. There's got to be, there, there's got to be a reason for it. So you, you push it and push it and push it to see, you know, how far you can go. Mm. How committed are they really? Needless to say, they, they all ended um, not very well. But when I joined the Brotherhood, that was the first time that I got, you know, confronted with it by a group of men, peers, who were able to basically say like, look, man, you got no boundaries. You know, and boundaries is, as far as I'm concerned, boundaries is the first step in taking some step towards self-respect, right? That's where you yeah. step out of, out of resentment into self-respect. 
did you ever get like help for what was going on? Did you ever go into therapy or try to get some external support to try and work through all the things that you'd been through, through childhood, through teens and into your adulthood? Not back then. Not back then. I didn't. And I remember it was, it was, uh, I always had an excuse. I was a man of many excuses and I was unhappy for years, but it was always, I'm unhappy because I don't have much money right now. Mm. I'm not happy because I don't have a job or I don't like the job that I'm doing. I'm not happy because I don't have a relationship. I'm not happy because I don't have a social circle, friends, you know, fill in the blank. There was always a reason for me to be unhappy. And those boxes kept changing. So I wasn't seeing the pattern because it was like, well, yeah, I was not happy because I had money, but now I have money, but now I'm not happy because of this. It's a different thing, right? But in mm. truth, it was it was all the same. You know, I wasn't happy. I was, and and I don't even like to use that term because there's this idea that, you know, we should be happy all the time. It was when I was in a relationship where I was like, this woman is amazing. I've got some money in the bank. I'm happy with where I'm at with my work. Got a bit of a social circle. Like all the things I ticked the box and was like, I've got nothing left to complain about and I'm still not happy. And that was that light bulb moment where I was like, oh, there's something more going on here. And uh, I remember going to the doctor. That was the first time I ever went to the doctor. He's known me my whole life. And I went in, I was like, I, I might be depressed. And he's like, well, here, do this test. You know, this written little survey test. And I filled it out. And I remember there's a score at the bottom. And he's like, you are the least depressed person who's ever walked into my clinic oh, wow. claiming to be depressed. But I'm very emotional. My emotional regulation has is, is been a big challenge for me. It, it's something that I still struggle with. So whatever I'm feeling in the moment is kind of where I'm at. So on the day that I went into the clinic, I was like, yeah, because I'm having a good day. Like, you know, but next week I know that I might not be feeling this way. And then that led me to a psychologist, got a prescription for some uh, antidepressants. And basically I just went on them seasonally because that was really when I was affected was the, the winter months. Um, so I was on them for two years and then I have never, never been on them since. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the brotherhood. because you mentioned the brotherhood and finding the brotherhood. Like what was that? like like entering the brotherhood what is it is it like an online thing is it in person thing tell us a bit about that yeah so it was a local uh, brotherhood here in vancouver and they've they've since expanded out so they've got little hubs around they've got an online version but at the time it was just in person i think there was over 200 guys all together and they were divided amongst different what they called squads so they were generally 10 to 16 people per squad so there were 15 16 guys in my squad it was basically like just kind of like a support group. You know, it's literally the men's circle. We'll sit in a circle. We do a little update on, you know, how our week went, what's going on in our life. And then it's it's basically a, do you want to share further or do you need further support? And on the days that, you know, we didn't have a lot of shares, we would go through some kind of exercise. But that was really just where I was really confronted with the value of being straight with your words. Say what you mean, mean what you say, be direct have boundaries, the value of being on time and, and respecting time and paying the price if you're not. So yeah, it just really instilled a lot of uh, things that you know I didn't have in my childhood and or even my work history because most of my work history, I was self-employed. So I didn't have that structure. So it really, it really taught me a lot about that. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a really valuable community in itself for you to start exploring some of this inner stuff as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about your journey, like what does having good mental health mean to you now? That's a that's a tricky question. And it, it's tricky because in my head, I'm like, there's no such thing as good mental health. There's just such a thing as having good mechanisms and good supports and tools that you can use. The mental health is you know, it, it can be great one day. Like, you know, you could, you could be somebody who's like, I've never had depression, never had a thing in my life. Like I'm great. And then the next day you lose everything. So you don't, I don't think that you have mental health or don't have mental health. I think it's a spectrum and it it's up and down every day, but it's the awareness and the resources and the tools that you have that allow you to thrive and cope, not even just cope, but even thrive. Right. So even if you're having a bad day, it's that that ability to tap into a tool or a resource or a people to get through that. I love that. I kind of reflect on it as a, a roller coaster ride. Like some days you're up and some days you're down. And some days you're leaning over the side throwing up. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone else is throwing up in your face. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Those are the real bad days. You know, and and what led me to building my community is that when I was in the brotherhood, one of the reasons I left the brotherhood was it has a lot of value. Every squad is different. So every squad has a little bit of a different feel and a different system. For me, it was, it was two things. One was too much and one was too little. And the too much was this focus on the hyper-masculine. There was a lot of the exercises that we would do that were screaming at each other and, you know, like just very like anger-based um, they weren't all anger based, but it was just a lot of that. It was very hyper masculine, which just felt weird to me. You know, like one of the exercises would just be like staring at each other, eye to eye, straight faced, you know, don't, don't break. I don't get it. Mm. Like it just didn't land for me. The other part of it that was too little for me was um, actual connection. I realized in hindsight, again, I had some walls up, so I wasn't really letting people in. Um, but just because of the, the format and the structure, it just didn't allow enough room for getting to know the person. So me and you were in the same squad. I would know all your shit. I would know all your secrets, all the stuff, all your fears, all the things, but I wouldn't know who Simon is. Like I was only getting that one side of who you are. And I didn't necessarily get to know who you were as a person. And there just wasn't enough room for me for that, that kind of connection. Yeah. So what led you to do man becoming and how did you, I guess, use that experience to create man becoming or, and work in this space? I left my squad and I remember telling them that, you know, I wanted to do my own, own thing. And, and it was really predicated on the idea that it was going to be much more community-based. So it'd be still doing the work, but less focus on the masculine more focus on life and more focus on the community aspect of just really getting to know who everybody is and building the relationships that way. So like, could you describe for anyone who's like, Oh, this sounds really interesting. I'd I'd like to check it out. Like what happens in your groups? Like, what does it look like? I mean, in honesty and a little transparency here is I'm just getting started. Um, So we're just kind of getting it off the ground. It's been a project that I've been talking about and you know, kind of behind the scenes thinking about it for, uh, for a couple of years. Um, COVID, COVID didn't help that, but it's effectively, it's built around personal development. So ideally the guys who would be interested in this are 
guys who are, you know, mindful, they're into reading books and, and personal growth, personal development. They're actively pursuing a better life. One of the major disconnects that most people have is, and I totally fell into this category. There's, it's kind of like two, two categories. One is I was the knowledge seeker. And this comes back to, you know, you could say, argue, it comes back to my schooling where it was just like, I just wanted to learn. So I'd read all the books. I'd go to the seminars. I'd see the speakers. I'd do the courses, do the programs. And yet my life wasn't really changing, but I had all the knowledge I had. I could tell everybody else what to do, Mm. but I wasn't seeing the results, but I had the knowledge. And then when I joined the brotherhood and I hired a coach as well, um, and I started getting a little more accountability around me. And then things started to change. I started to get better results. I started to see some of the progress. And that's when I realized that we need external accountability, most of us, to not only move from that state of knowledge into doing, but we also still need that community to go from doing to excelling, right? So it's kind of, you talked about the Aussie rules, same idea, right? You've got, you've kind of got three, Um, three major players, if you will, that are on your side. You've got a coach who teaches you how to play the game and how to play it better. You've got teammates who hold you accountable and push you and challenge you to, to grow and be better. And then you have the cheerleaders and the cheerleaders aren't there just to be like, yeah, you're awesome. But they're actually there to keep you in the game. They don't let you quit. A real cheerleader doesn't let you quit. And that's effectively kind of what the idea of this community is, is that, you know, you can have the, the support and guidance and, and learning from a coach with a bunch of teammates who are going to push you and challenge you to grow all while everybody's cheering you on. Everybody's making sure you stay in the game and reminding you of how, how great you are, how awesome you are. Um, yeah. It sounds great. Like, yeah, it sounds really cool. And I love this sense of community building and, and getting away from that, you know, I've seen that toxic masculinity, the 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 extreme machoism. Like on on my Insta, when I first joined Instagram, I saw these videos of guys screaming at each other. I'm, I'm like, I would never do that. That does not interest me whatsoever. But does that mean I'm not a man? Does that mean I'm not masculine? Does it mean I'm more feminine? I mean, yeah, maybe. I don't know. But do I really care at the same time? No, because it's yeah. not me and it's not. You know, I grew up on a football field, hurting my body to get through each game and pushing myself hard and pushing my teammates and and vice versa. But it's just not who I am. Like I, I was actually the player on the outside of the pack running as fast as he could so I wouldn't get tackled and wouldn't get hurt because internally I was like, I don't want to get bone crunched and bleeding and all this type of stuff. But And I'd never admit that to anyone. I've only been admitting it more recently, like on the podcast as well. But I'd never admit that growing up, you'd never admit that you wouldn't take a hit for your teammates or whatever. But I like how you you really described it. Like in the cheerleader, I just think about a packed Melbourne cricket ground with 100,000 cheerleaders in it screaming yeah. for their team. We recently had the AFL grand final, so the, the pinnacle of the, of the season. And yeah, you get about 100,000 people there to as you're like cheerleading you and keeping you going, egging you on, not letting you quit because, you know, at the end of the day, that victory is what you're all seeking as a collective community working towards that same goal. 
Yeah. Um, I really like that analogy. I never really experienced that fully until this past spring. Um, I ran the, uh, the Vancouver marathon. I ran the, the half marathon. I was supposed to do the full. And then I just, I didn't train enough. And I was like, <laughs> I, I tapped out. I was like, I'm going to do the half. Um, but it was still, I'd never done a half before. I mean, the longest I'd ever run was about, you know, 16 K or something like that. Um, and again, like didn't do the full training. I was very ill prepared. The race got off to a massive delay. So I, they have those energy packs, the gel packs. So we took that, I consumed the whole thing, caffeine, sh- pure sugar, everything. And I'm standing there for 45 minutes waiting for the race to start. Like it was just, you know, by the time it starts, it's like, okay, now I got to pee. <laughs> just like all the things, right? Cause you're like super hydrated. Cause you're like, okay, I'm ready. I'm hydrated. I got the sugar in me. I got the caffeine. I'm ready to go. And then an hour later you start the race and you're like, well, now I'm coming off, you know, yep. but I was expecting it to be grueling. I was expecting it to be torturous, not very fun. And the combination, even though it was, I was running it as a solo person, the combination of kind of the teammates, which was all the people that were running with me. I just remember the whole time, like I was cracking jokes the whole run, you know, like I remember being like 16 kilometer mark and it was like, you know, cracking jokes around like, well, I think I'm warmed up now, (laughs) you know, just (laughs) whatever. Right. Just trying to like get a reaction from people, but it was the fans, the people on the sidelines, on the sidewalks that I didn't realize how much they can lift you up. They, Mm. none of them had a sign for me. None of them knew me, but just them being there and reading the signs and knowing that, you know, even if it was a sign for somebody, I was like, you know, there was a lot of people that were like, oh, we got wine at the finish line. And I'm like, where, where, where can I find you? (laughs) You know, like where, where's the party? I ran that marathon in, I think it was two hours, half marathon in two hours, five minutes. I guaranteed could have run it sub two hours, like Mm -hmm. by far. There was a point where I remember I ran about three kilometers, four kilometers at around the 17, 18, 19 kilometer mark where I'm running. And I'm like, I was breathing at the same level I was if I was walking. It was effortless. The only part of the race that I struggled in was the part that didn't have people. That was it. As soon as I got back into the people, I was like, oh man, this is awesome. So it's, it's, it's so underrated, especially for men this idea of having people behind us and, and asking for help and having that support network. And the amount of guys that I talk to, you know, I, I bring up the idea of like having friends and they're kind of like, oh, I don't really need friends. And I'm like, mm. wow, wow. You really bought in. Part of the delay in getting this whole community started was I was really not sure where to go because I was very aware of the reality of being a man today. I was very aware of it. I live in what's called the downtown east side. I'm like I'm like three blocks away from central. It is the most dense neighborhood, I think, in the world for, or at least in North America, for drugs and homelessness. And you know, it it's it's incredibly tragic how huge it is. Most of it's men. You know, and I, I see the men all the time outside where they're, they've been into the heroin and where they, it literally deforms their body. So they, they cannot stand upright. They're hinged at the hip. Their back is parallel with ground and that that's their permanent state. I just see the 
the trauma and the pain and everything that's led them to that point. It's at that point where it's like, you cannot think about it too much because it's just too much. And so I was really struggling with the community around where do I build it? Because I really wanted to build a community of this place of belonging and building friendships, building relationships, having that place of support. But one of the issues that I ran up against was that when you talk about this with guys, guys are like, oh man, that's great. Like we totally need that. Just not for me. Yeah. And I was last Christmas, like last holidays. Um, I remember getting a message from my buddy's girlfriend and she was like, Hey, have you, have you heard from Corey? And I was like, no, I, I haven't heard from Corey. And they're like, Oh, well we, we normally like me and his mom, we hear from him like daily and we haven't heard from him. So maybe you could reach out. And I was like, sure. So I reached out on messenger and you know, on the status thing, it's like active one hour ago. And I was like, Corey, how you doing, man? No response. And I open it up two hours later, four hours later, go to bed, wake up, no response reach out to her. I was like, Hey, have you heard from him? And she's like, yeah, he's dead. And he was a guy who had suffered some sexual abuse when he was younger teenager at the hands of another guy, even though they were only a few years apart, he was in some kind of more authoritative position, authority role. Um, and this went on, this went on for apparently a long time. And he only told me this on my birthday a few months earlier. Mm. And I think he only told me because he was so drunk that I don't think he even knew what he was saying. And I knew things were kind of falling. Like I could see him like getting worse and worse. And my last message to him was like, Hey, let's get together at my place. We'll play some pool, hang out. And I was working a job at the time and I was so caught up in the idea of being so busy at my job that I never reached out. And then the next thing I know he's, he's gone. And I remember in that moment, like I, it was, it was, it was one of the first times that I ever just sat there and just cried. And I cried for like three days. So like every, I just go somewhere, park my car. And just all of a sudden I just be like spontaneously, just like bawling my eyes out. And it's not that I'm taking responsibility for what happened to him. It was an actual, it was an accidental overdose is what it was. It was, it was fentanyl. Mm-hmm. It was laced. It was, it was not a, not a suicide, but I took responsibility for my behavior. You know, I told him like, Hey, let's get together. And then I didn't stick to my word. Mm-hmm. I could see that he was suffering and I didn't reach out. And I'm not saying that it's going to change the outcome, but in that moment, that was when I was like, I need to create a community. I need to create a space where guys can talk, you know, they can take the mask off and they don't have mm. to, to hide. And yes, it's around personal development, but personal development starts with self. So I sorry to hear about your, your mate, Corey, they're like shocking, but I think it highlights like how we bottle things up and struggle to, to open up and talk about things. And you know, how, how you said that he was so drunk that you don't even know if he knew what he was talking about, you know, and we were talking earlier about, you know, starting drinking early and, and for a lot of guys, myself included, alcohol was a coping mechanism. In my brain, my brain would would go a million miles an hour. So I'd often use alcohol as a way to calm things and just feel numb and mm-hmm. f- not feel pain as well. Like you, you said that yourself, like you, you'll go through benders like, you know, 16, those years afterwards as well. Like, A, we're conditioning ourselves at that age and each other through our friendships. Uh, but then also it carries on into our adult years as well and and how we cope with things and 
And I guess this really highlights the importance of the some of the work that you're doing with man becoming and, and men's circles in more broadly, that we can finally have this safe space that is a community that we can start to open up and unpeel this onion that we are and get right deep into what's really happening, like what's causing us to drink so much, what's causing us to isolate or not have, you know, friendships as well. And and be mindful of those things so that we can then be mindful of how we can come out of that as well and grow into the guys that we always wanted to be. Yeah. And I think that like, and I'm I'm not trained in the mental health field at all, but just from what I've learned and what I've experienced myself, it's so cyclical, which is why it's such a damaging thing mm. is that, you know, we're taught when we're young, like, like you said about, you know, on the playground, like, oh man, you really shouldn't cry, you know? Luckily he knew better. Mm. He, he had some, somebody in his corner that was like, it's totally okay to express your emotion. But for most boys, we were told, you know, don't do that. And even if we weren't told that, we just knew that it was inherent. You yeah. just don't do it. And then we bottle it up. And then because we bottle it up, we don't learn how to process emotion. And then when an emotion happens and we don't know how to deal with it because we've never learned we turn to some kind of avoidance. And as far as I'm concerned, most addiction is just avoidance. Obviously there's chemical addiction, but what leads into that is avoidance. And I, I think that like alcohol, I don't know how addicting alcohol, I, to my knowledge, it's actually not really an addictive substance that might trigger some people and I apologize, but it's the numbing that's addicting. It's avoiding that's addicting. And I know that every time that I'm like, oh man, I could really use a drink. Like, even if it's just like not much is going on, but I'm just like, man, I, you know, I, I'm going to grab a, you know, a single tall can on the way home. I have to catch myself and go, what is it that I'm avoiding? What is it that's so uncomfortable in me that I feel like I need to numb it? And also like putting on a mask, like, so I'm not sure about you, but as as I've got older, I've become more introverted. And I think that's the mental health and me telling me I'm not good enough and all this type of stuff. So in order to socialize, I need to drink, put the mask on, and here I go. Now I'm all of a sudden Simon who's able to have a conversation with someone who I haven't met before. So A, we're numbing it, but also B, it serves as a mask to socialize as well. And there's another layer to that as well, which is depression. Like, I'm not going to get into the science because I'm, I'm not, that's not where, where I'm at, but I know there is scientific studies showing that, you know, they can be very chemical based, but I also understand inherently that we manifest. And I, I think that even if there is a chemical imbalance, I think that we can manifest that chemical imbalance. Like, I think that the chemical imbalance is very likely created by herself subconsciously or unconsciously. But one definition that I heard of depression that, that really landed for me. And I really, it, it really made sense because, you know, the depression rates amongst men is huge. It's very high. And this definition basically said that it's a disconnect or a betrayal of self. So from a young age, we're not allowed to express our emotions. So our emotion self is shut off. Then we're told you can't dress like that. You can't play with dolls. You can't do that thing. You can't, you know, figure skating is for girls. It doesn't matter what it is, right? 
anything that wasn't in the hyper-masculine category was immediately put into the opposite. It was put into the like, oh, that's girly, that's feminine, that's, mm-hmm. you know. So all of those things get cut off. Even things, something like drama, drama class was feminized, which is ridiculous when you think about it. Mm. A lot of the guys that we look up are these movie stars. <sighs> Are you kidding me? Right. Yeah. And you know, but yet they do, they start in drama class and it's like, oh, you know, it's, and the amount of kids and the amount of, especially guys that have to choose between drama class and art and sports. Cause it's like, you can't be both. You can mm. be the jock, but you can't be the artist and peer pressure usually leads to sports. So there's this whole system that creates this betrayal of self. We can't express our emotions. We can't admit that we're suffering and that we're struggling, that we have a problem because, you know, everybody else has bigger problems than ours. So it's not making light of it, but whether it's women or BIPOC or LGBTQ or a combination of all of those as, as a straight white CIS male, the response is like, are you kidding me? Do you know how good you got it? Mm. Like try stepping into my shoes and it becomes a competition and it's, my struggles are bigger than your struggles. So your struggles don't count. I think that that is a major problem that we are over, like overlooking. It's a major oversight. So we're cut off from our emotions. We're cut off from acknowledging that we even have a problem in the first place. We're cut off from expression unless it fits the hyper-masculine, which I don't think a lot of guys naturally fall into. I think it's just a lot of peer pressure that, that mm-hmm. the guys go that way. You know, and then there's like the expectations around women, especially when you become a teenager that, you know, you're supposed to be a horn dog. You're supposed to be, you know, wanting to, to be with all the girls and, you know, and, and for a lot of guys, it's not true. It's just not a big deal to them, but they mm. have to, again, put on that mask and you can see how it just builds this whole cycle of betrayal of self. You can't express yourself emotionally. You can't express yourself artistically. You can't express yourself with where you're at and what you're going through. You have to dress a certain way. You have to have a certain kind of job. You have to make a certain kind of money. Like it just goes round and round and round. And then we wonder why we have, you know, male suicide rates as high as they are. Well, mm. suicide is ultimately reaching that dead end road going there. There's nowhere else for me to go. And it's, it's the boxes that we've been put into that creates that dead end. But in truth, there is no dead end. There's an infinite possibilities but because we put in such a small box and then we have to live up to this box. And we realize somewhere along the lines that whether we are aware of it or not, depression is the symptom of I'm in a box that I don't belong in. This isn't who I am. I'm not living my own life, you know, and, and for any, any guy out there or just person out there who's been, you know, whether it's trans or, um, you know, if they're gay, that idea of, you know, coming out, some guys, you know, like a lot of guys don't come out until they're well into their thirties and even forties, all those years that they lived in betrayal to themselves, they were very aware of it, but they couldn't tell the world. So they had to pretend that they were somebody else. And it's no wonder that the depression rates are also high. And then all of that lends itself back to that, avoiding that feeling and the addiction. And I want to be clear, the addiction doesn't have to be alcohol. It doesn't have to be substance. It can be sex. It can be porn. It can be work, right? It can be the gym. Anything that we go to obsessively, 
when we start feeling uncomfortable and that's the thing that we go to, it's, it's not necessarily a healthy, even if it's the gym, it's not necessarily a healthy thing. It's, it's, it's a trauma response. It's a, it's an addiction and it's an addiction based on avoidance. Yeah. So some of the things you're talking about, or a lot of the stuff you're talking about, it reminds me of patriarchy and, and this role that patriarchy has in our society. And I know you're interested in male patriarchal psychology. So is this yes. leaning into that? Like, can you tell us a bit about that, your interest in that? And is this what you're talking about when you're, when you're talking about putting ourselves in all these boxes and not allowing ourselves to jump out of them? That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. And, um, you know, for, for any guys listening, there's a book that I highly recommend listening to or, or reading. Um, it's by Bell Hooks. Uh, she was a feminist and she passed away just, I think, a couple of years ago, sadly. But she wrote a book called The Will to Change. And I had been talking about, you know, the, the social constructs or the social contracts that men live by. And when I listened to her book, I was like, oh, my God, she gave me the language to understand what I was talking about. She was saying the same things, just she had, she had the language around it. Like I'd never heard of male patriarchal psychology until she said it. And it's exactly that. It's the men must be the breadwinners. The men have to be strong and tough because otherwise you're just not a man. You have to have, you know, there's this idea of you have to be put together. You have to have all the answers. You have to be like a, a sexual god you know, otherwise you're, you're not worthy and you have to be athletic and you have to be into manly things. You have to be into cars and motors and sports and fighting and, you know, and it's all of these rules, but most importantly, it's, it's the detachment from self, which is the, you're not allowed to feel emotions. You're not allowed to acknowledge that you struggle. You're not allowed to do the things that aren't super masculine. And what it does is, and I love her description of patriarchy, it's to divide and control. And with those same communities that I was just talking about with women, BIPOC, LGBTQ, it's very easy to see how it's divided and controlled. Very easy to see it. With men, we don't see it. And I think that there's this illusion, there's this misnomer that men are the patriarchy because they've got all the advantages. So they must be the patriarchy. But the truth is, is that we are the sons and daughters of the patriarchy. We, we are not the father of it. We are, we are the sons of it. And the divide and control isn't external. It's in here and in here where we get divided from ourself. And when we're divided from ourself, it's really easy to send us to a factory to go and work. It's, you know, and, and be away from the family. It's easy to separate us in war and send us off to war. Right? So it was, it was a necessary tool for the machine to be able to control the male population, to get them to do what they need to do. And how do you send somebody off to war to go and kill somebody that they don't even know? Mm. You got to be pretty detached from who you are. Yeah. It got me thinking about some of the things that I, I see in the dad space. So I, you know, I'm a dad myself and, and I follow a lot of dads on socials as well. And this, this concept around new age parenting and the new dad. I read an article about the new dad, which is actively trying to, I guess, move away from that traditional sense of, you know, what we grew up as kids in terms of how we can raise our boys particularly. And like, say, for example, my son, one week he wants to do football, the next week he wants to do choir and, and or dance and 
Next week could be ninja classes. I, I, he's all over the place. Uh, it's hard to keep up, actually. But from a from a dad's perspective, a new age dad perspective, I'm like, yeah, man. Like, if you want to go and dance and sing, and and he's got some killer moves on the dance floor, um, that's cool. And then I also think about career choices because, you know, at, at a young age, we're also like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then we start pushing people down certain lines. But yeah. I think back to my career before I became a social worker, I kind of fell into that safe box and I thought, I actually wanted to be an artist. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to make money out of that. So I'm going to go this safe option yeah. that's going to give me a desk job and nine to five job or whatever. But for my son, Gus, and my daughter, Pippa, when they get to that age, I'll be like, you just follow whatever lights you up and makes you bounce out of bed because at the end of the day, as long as you're happy, then I'm happy. You know, money is important, but also you learn to live within the means. If you're not making millions of dollars, that's okay. And so thinking about my growing up and my my young adulthood and my adulthood and then projecting and going, okay, or reflecting, not so much projecting because I guess patriarchy is projecting. Yeah but reflecting and go, okay, well, this is the things that I didn't like growing up. And this is also the things that I would have liked growing up. Let's our kids just explore life themselves and and figure out their own path. And we'll just guide them along the way Mm -hmm. as best as we can, as gently as we can, but also trying not to be the helicopter parent as well. And I think there's a lot of guys in this space, yourself included, and, and dads particularly that are just like, yeah, like let's really embrace the the kids and being kids and, and also we can get a lot of value from how they see the world and, and also challenge the way we see the world through their eyes as well. Um, what's some things that, you know, thinking about your knowledge around you know, patriarchal psychology and your growing up and, and where you think you're going to go in the future, what's some things that, that guys can do to kind of challenge those traditional constructs? Well, while you were talking, I was thinking about like, I'm not a father, not yet anyways, but, you know, we're talking about the patriarchal system. One of the things that we as men and as, as for those that are fathers that I think that needs to be reclaimed is that being a father is a caretaker. It is a role. And we need to do away with the idea of I'm the father, I'm the provider, because that's one more way that we are divided. And all you have to do is look at the courts right? Courts automatically, and this is global, courts automatically favor the woman because she's naturally predisposed to be a better parent because she's a woman. So fathers are more likely to lose full custody of their kids, but they're also the ones that are on the hook to pay the bills. Mm. So you can, you can literally be paying a financial cost to raise kids that you are not even allowed to see. And, and that you want to talk about divide and control that that's it in a spotlight. So I think that, you know, just the language that we use and being aware of that. So as a father, you know, my, my idea would be like, you know, I am a caretaker. I am the father. I am, I do all the same things that mom does except breastfeed <laughs> and, <laughs> and claiming it and, and claiming it with pride and, and not hiding behind it. Cause a lot of times that guys get shamed for it. Mm. You know, like, mm. Oh, you're stay at home dad. Ooh. Like while your wife is out making the money or, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it's, it's such a shameful situation. It's shaming and shameful. But I think that, you know, one of the things that I'm learning and, and it, it's not easy, you know, I'm 42, it's been 42 years of being put in a box. So it's, it's not easy, but start to just 
own little bits and pieces of what it is that you secretly enjoyed. So, you know, if you think back to childhood, like what was it that you did that lit you up? What was it you could mm. do for hours? And is there a way that you can do that now? It might look different now, but is there a way that you can do that now? Um, and just try and find a little bit of time to do it or whatever. Um, you know, maybe it's personal expression. I love bright colors, right? So it's, for me, it's just like, I'm going to wear bright colors and, and I've been contemplating. And now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, maybe what I'm going to do is, you know, the idea of, I like music festivals. So like maybe the next festival I go to, I'm going to paint my nails yellow because I love yellow and just use that. And maybe that's the first step is, you know, the, the festival is the safe space yeah. so I can go and paint my nails. And then maybe it goes beyond that. Maybe it's like, oh, I really like this. And it, it doesn't have to be feminine, but it just has to be something that, and, and I don't even like the masculine feminine. It's just an expression. Whatever that thing is that you've buried that little bit of yourself, just start taking ownership of it just little by little. And I think that's the best way out of it. Um, and it, it doesn't matter what it is and it doesn't matter how silly it is. I love that. Cause I was, I was talking to another podcast guest, April Likens a few weeks back and around burnout. And we we're talking about rediscovering joy as a, as a self-care practice and a way to look after ourselves. And, you know, we often are very joyful in, in childhood. Like we find those things that really light us up, you know, if it's camping, fishing, video games, music, whatever, dance, whatever it is. But then, yeah. we, but then we become adults and we have to adult <laughs> yeah. and we lose, we lose track of that joy and, and we kind of bury ourselves in what our roles as, as you said, providers instead of caregivers and, and, and all that type of stuff. But, but finding joy is something that it does light us up and it makes us feel yeah. good. And if you've got kids, if you don't know how to find joy, just go and find their joy because they do some yeah. weird and wonderful things. Like we, we play a lot of hide and seek at the moment. It's just, you wouldn't believe how many times I've counted to 10 in the last <laughs> few weeks yeah. and then find my kids around in the same spot in the house, but they love it. And it's so yeah. much fun just hearing them laugh, you know, just yeah. something simple like that. And here's another thing too, is it doesn't even have to be from childhood. It's just like, what's mm. that thing that, you know, maybe publicly, you feel maybe shame or embarrassed, but what, what's something that you can do for you? And, you know, it's funny cause I'm in a condo building and I'm facing, I, I see like all of downtown from my place. So it's like, I can see everything. And there's times where at night as like, I'll have my blinds up. So windows are fully open and I'll just turn some music on. And I'm just, I literally for like 45 minutes, I'll just like dance <laughs> something that I it's something that I've always been very self-conscious of one, cause I'm not good. Two is I'm rather tall. And as a tall guy, there's a reason why so many tall guys slouch because they just want to fit in. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a bar or you're in a place where you're dancing, you can see everybody. It means everybody can see you. Mm. So you can't just dance and blend in. It's, it feels like you're on the, it, it's the same feeling as if you were dancing on a stage. So for me, like one of those things is just like, dance like nobody's watching and yeah. and I can do that in my own place and it it can be my secret nobody needs to know about it but it's one of those things that I look like a fool I suck at dancing <laughs> awkward as hell but it brings me joy like it makes me feel good and that would be my big thing is like you know and you talk about being a father and it's especially true for fathers is stop putting yourself last 
we tend to have a priority list and our name is never on it. Or at least below the dog. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it's, it's that idea that, well, first I need to take care of the paycheck. Then I need to make sure the wife is okay. Then I need to make sure the kid's okay. Then I got to make sure the dog is okay. Then I got to make sure the house is okay. Mm. And before you get through your checklist of all the things that got to be okay, you've run out a day Mm. and then you run out a week and you run out a month and you run out a year. And I think that men need to start, you know, women do it really, really well of just taking those moments where it's like, I'm going to have me time. And for them, it might be just the candlelit bath, you know, or whatever. And I think that guys need to start doing that as well. I love that. That's really good advice. We cannot live healthily on a hamster wheel that has no end. You know, we have to get off of it once in a while and just be like, Hey, self-care time, you know, maybe it is a bath. I don't know. Maybe it's a hot tub. I don't know, but whatever it is, it's like, it's important that we do it. And I just don't think that guys stop long enough to put their name on the list. Kyle, I'm having a, such an amazing chat, but I recognize <laughs> that, you know, we could probably go for the rest of the day. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Two more questions and I'll let you go. And yeah. Um, The first one, if people do want to find you, like what's the best way to do that? Yeah. So right now I'm just setting everything up. So it's not, you know, like I said, it's, it's Mm -hmm. just getting going. So you should be able to just Google man becoming, um, and, and hopefully that'll, that'll show up. Otherwise it's, uh, it's just my name on, on most things. Yeah. Cool. And it does show up. I I was Googling it before. Um, yeah. So yeah, we would definitely put the links in the show notes, but the last question is, and, and we just talked about your dancing. Um, but plug something that makes you feel good. So it doesn't have to be anything to do with mental health or patriarchy or, or whatever, but yeah, what's something other than your dancing, unless you really want to plug your dancing again, that makes you feel good. <laughs> For me, it's, and this is clearly why I've ended up where I've ended up, um, with what I'm doing. Um, but also why I've struggled a lot mm-hmm. is it's people. I really enjoy being around people. I enjoy conversations like this. Um, I know this is podcast style, but if this wasn't a podcast, we'd be having the same conversation. Hosting, hosting events, bringing people together. That, that, that's really what it is. It's bringing people together, getting to know who they are, um, and, and just conversations like this. That's, that's really, I could do this all day, every day. Yeah. And I guess that's, that's that stuff that comes into man becoming is creating that community for guys um to to come and yeah connect and and learn more about each other than just one side of their personalities and what's going on as well i remember i remember one of the questions that somebody had asked me they said you know why man becoming and why you and the answer to the why you part was because i'm willing to go where most men aren't hmm I'm willing to step into that vulnerability to open that space up for other men to come into, whereas most men just are not willing to, you know, first, they're not willing to go first if they're willing to go at all. Um, So I think that's a big, big part of it. Well, Kyle, thanks so much again for your time. This has been a really great in-depth vulnerable chat. And I really appreciate you opening up about your story and, and sharing it with us today. I'm so happy to be here. It's been a, been an absolute pleasure. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode and I hope you got some value from it. If anything triggered your mental health today, please reach out to your support networks. 
Also, if you love what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the show and share it with your mates. For more from Mindful Men, you can check us out on Instagram and YouTube, and I'll throw the links to these pages in the show notes below. But until next time, stay mindful.